Hello, I'm Dr. Annalene Weston, Dental Legal Consultant at Dental Protection. Welcome to Risk Matters, our latest series of podcasts created specifically for dental practitioners in Australia. As the name suggests, Risk Matters is all about managing risk. In this podcast series, we'll be taking your feedback and queries and putting them to leading industry experts, getting them to answer the difficult questions about managing risk and working safely. It's about what to do when managing risk matters most. In this edition, I'm talking to Brad Wright. Brad has an incredibly impressive CV, but has asked me to simply share that he graduated as a dentist in 1982 and worked as a dentist until 2014. He's worked as a barrister at the Queensland Bar since 2011 and currently limits his practice to health law, particularly dental practice issues from chambers in the Inns of Court in Brisbane. So welcome, Brad, and thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Oh, it's a pleasure, Annalene. No, we really appreciate it because I know you're very busy. I guess what I wanted to talk to you about, so for uh, those of our listeners who aren't aware, with Brad being a barrister, he's somebody that we at Dental Protection work with from time to time, sometimes a lot, uh, in conjunction with the panel lawyers that we use and sometimes separately. And I think, Brad, it would be fair to say that you and I often see patterns in the complaints that we receive or perhaps patterns of behavior in the practitioners. And that's really what I wanted to talk with you about today, because I think it helps people better understand what we're worried about if they hear it from another perspective. Sure. No, I hope that's helpful to your members. So starting with the patterns, then, what do you think the common things that you see or any common issues you see arising in complaints would be? Um, Well, the biggest one in terms of what you see in the complaints uh, or the notifications or the response to that is typically uh, really poor uh, correlation between what happened and what's in the records. In other words, really poor record keeping. Um, Because as you know better than me, uh, that just means it's almost impossible to assist the member as much as you might like, simply as there is nothing that you can work with. So if there was nothing that would be taken away today, apart from this, it would be people should pay particular attention to their records and do them properly. I love it when we talk about records and it's always good to get it out early. Sometimes I feel it's all I talk about, but I absolutely agree with you. And one thing that we often say is as proceduralists, we're terribly good at writing down what we did but we're generally pretty rubbish at writing down what we said. Would you think that's fair? I think it's true. And it just occurred to me at a recent medical visit because I'm of a certain age, 62.23 to be precise, that um, the best way for dentists to proceed, uh, I think, particularly specialists and people that do high-risk procedures, is to treat their patients as if they're um, on referral from someone else. So to give you an example, If uh, I were to go to a dermatologist, for example, instead of actually creating a clinical record, what she or he will do will dictate a record, uh, a response or a letter back to the referrer. And I think that's very powerful for two reasons. One is that that is a record that is undeniably provided to both the patient and to the general practitioner in that case. But equally, the patient is there while they dictate it. Uh, And so it can be very efficient and it can be dictated and then transcribed. And really for dentists who say, oh, look, I don't have time, there's too much to go on and so on, I think that if they were to get into that habit as a fallback, that would, in my view, be best practice in the current arrangements to do. I don't know if you've considered that or suggested that before, but I just think it's a really excellent way of 
creating great records. No, I love that because from my term of bias, that's actually how I work. So I dictate to my dental assistant, actually, who types my records in real time. So So did I when I was a dentist. (laughs) Well, it works, doesn't it? It does. So but what's great is the patient actually, as you've said, hears what you're saying. So sometimes it can come across a little bit strange and I have to explain what I'm doing. So when the patient gives me their medications and I repeat them, uh, sometimes they look at me like I'm I don't know, like, is there an echo? And I explain, I'm repeating what you said because uh, Miriam, my dental assistant, is writing that down because you know, I say, oh, I've got a brain like a sieve or I'm not going to remember at the end of the appointment or, or whatever the explanation I give. And then they understand that I'm actually signaling to Miriam and they hear her typing then. So when I call things out and it gives them the opportunity to ask questions as well. So when I'm doing their assessment and, for example, I do an extra oral assessment, they'll say, you know, what does that mean? Or that felt, I felt a click then. And I said, yep. So when I said this, and then it opens a conversation too. I feel like it's the patient's secret. It's not my secret. So they're perfectly entitled to know what I say about them in their records. Uh, Absolutely. The transparency is really important. I think that one of the factors that dentists don't deal well with is that the old 80-20 rule. So 20% 20% of their patients will say, what are you doing that? I'm not comfortable with you talking to the dental assistant about it and dictating it. And so they will completely discard this protocol um, because of the objection of one in five or one in 10 patients. And I think that's an error because that just is an opportunity for them to engage with the patient and explain why. Um, and if uh, I think if dentists did that, um, they would have heart far less problems for the reasons that would be obvious. Yeah, I agree. And those patients that don't like my procedures and protocols, it's really good I know who they are early because, as you said, it gives me the opportunity to have that discussion with them because it might be that we're not right for each other and that's okay. I'd rather know that now than before I try and do perhaps an irreversible procedure or a painful procedure on them and find out the hard way that they hate my guts and they don't like the way I work. I think it's a really good opportunity to have that conversation with them early, personally. The problem that you and I would see, Annalene, in relation to records is the templating aspect, which it seems we're going to spend the whole of this day talking about records, so let's just get on with it. The problem <laughs> with templating is, of course, that it shows no independent thought. And so it's very easy to fall into the trap with software that there is a template set up and uh, you follow that template. And for reasons that should be clear, that's a problem because anyone reviewing it, whether it be a health fund, a third-party provider, um, or a regulator, they're going to see that this looks like, particularly if there's a number of records provided to a health fund, for example, that there is no independent thought. The great thing that we've lost with handwritten notes is it's very hard to use a template with handwritten notes Mm -hmm. that dictates the process completely. And the laziness that comes with, you know, information technology means that we're more likely to, God knows what will happen when chat GPT gets involved in this, but the problem with this will be that it doesn't look like it actually is an example of someone giving independent thought to each patient. And that's really what we're trying to do at the end of the day is to evidence through those records that I've thought about this person, I've thought about their circumstances, my treatment has varied to suit their circumstances. And when you dictate something or you handwrite it, it's very hard to um, hide that um, that aspect of it because um, you have to think about it and do it while you speak or write. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think going back to cases, we've both had cases 
where the veracity of the patient's records has been questioned because they have been so templated. So the question is, did that discussion, and I'm looking at you thinking of one that we were just discussing before we started this, where that was a templated record. And it became very difficult for us to evidence that that conversation had really taken place because it was brief and it wasn't personalized to that particular patient and that particular patient's needs. And it was problematic. And look, anyone making a decision around these issues, whether it be health fund regulator, has to go on the balance of probabilities. So if there's a series of records that are identical with different patients, then it's more likely than not that no independent thought went into the records. It's as simple as that. Um, On other issues of records, I hear you ask, um, one of the things, (laughs) just slightly changing topic, but still talking about records, which we could go on for a long time, is radiographs. One of the big problems I've seen, and I'd be interested what you think about this, I suspect it may be something similar, um, is that people take radiographs without interpreting and and people fail to understand the difference between radiography and radiology. Mm -hmm. So if someone um, were to record an OPG, for example, or even two bite wings, it's not sufficient to write no abnormalities, no abnormalities disclosed there has to be some brief radiographic, radiological report mm-hmm. such that this is what was seen, bone height, um, radiolucencies, anything else on the borders of the focused area. That doesn't happen. Um, very rarely does it happen. And that, particularly with the complexity of radiology, as time passes, it's going to become more and more of a problem that people are not Um, adverting to what's on radiographs. An example that I have used in the past, and I've spoken to Professor Monsur about this. Paul Monsur is a emeritus professor at UQ, for those who don't know of maxillofacial radiology. And he used to say to me that the best thing you can do is get all of your radiographs at the end of the day that you've taken, give all of yours to another practitioner and ask them to interpret them, and you look at theirs and see what differences there are. And you will be amazed at what people see when they haven't got a personal involvement in the radiograph, if that makes sense. That's really, really good advice. I think that interestingly, radiographic review is an opportunity to use a template in that you could have prompts and then that would enable you or support you in systematically reviewing that x-ray and then writing down, you know, what you need to know, what you need to see so you don't forget. Because I think one thing we commonly see, and I'm sure you would see this too, Brad, people can be distracted by the symptoms of the patient. And they'll hone in, say, on quadrant one on an OPG, and there's something going on in quadrant two that they just don't see because they're distracted by the issue they're trying to deal with at hand. So actually taking time to do a supported systematic review, they're far less likely to miss things and make mistakes. Absolutely right. And it can be evidenced as simply as if someone's got pain in a 1-6, they're expecting to see a hole and decay. And you would have seen this and I would have, have seen this where the 1.7 has an even larger cavity mm-hmm. or a severe periodontal disease or calcified canals or some other aspect that's not picked up at all because mm-hmm. the mind is focusing on that. And that it's a really interesting idea of getting colleagues to report on your own x-rays and see what they say. And yeah, it, it's, and the fact that you know that's happening can be of great value to the practitioners. But most importantly, let's be honest for the patients. Because that's what it's all about, isn't it? Safe patient care. I might try that. I often get my colleagues to check my x-rays 
because um, I think it's interesting to see what they see. And I really value a second opinion. I think I've been in this game long enough that I no longer have the hubris. I don't worry if people think, well, why is she checking? I'd rather check and know. And I think it's interesting to see what other people see as well. I don't assume that I know everything. But no, it's best <laughs> not to have that view. Whatever for possible. Sure. So moving away from records, shocking, I know. Thinking about patterns of behavior and things that you and I see, which are perhaps helpful or unhelpful. You mentioned a complaint or a notification. So, of course, often when you and I become involved, it's when something's gone wrong and or a complaint has been received or a notification made to the regulator or a legal claim, of course. What things do you think are helpful for a practitioner to do or not do in the first instance? So just so I understand you, because I'm fearful I may not be answering the question, <laughs> um, you're asking me what should they do on receipt of a notification? Yeah, and mm. what should they not do as well? Because sometimes when we're limbically hijacked, we can make some pretty poor choices early on that are then going to cast the die on how that complaint goes. So That's, just some examples would be great. Um, limbically challenged. I haven't heard that before. I'll have to write that down. Um, <laughs> I think that what the first thing they should do is do nothing for a short period of time and read the entirety of the document. Um, and nothing is going to change in that instant. There's nothing that requires attention that minute, that hour, most times not even that day. That's the first thing I'd say because people sometimes get a phone call. APRA uh, used to go through a process. I'm not sure what your experience is of this is recently, Annalene, but they would typically um, sometimes think, look, we can't be bothered sending a letter out. We'll just give the practitioner a call and see what their response is. Well, number one, don't take that call um, for what reasons that should be clear. And that is that you will be arms deep in someone's mouth and be expected to come away to take a call from the dental board or the regulator. Um, just have a proper receptionist protocol whereby you call them back or you get it in writing by an email. There's nothing to be lost by not speaking to the regulator. And, you know, God bless their little cotton socks. They are trying to do the best they can. Mm -hmm. But the world is full of examples of dentists getting on and on the phone and saying things which people like you and me and Lean have to clean up later on. So Absolutely, because they're frightened, because yep. they're distracted by what's going on with the patient in the chair, and we'll come back to that in a moment, because they're defensive, mm. because they feel threatened or attacked. And then, of course, they walk away from that conversation, and that poor patient in the chair is now not getting their attention at all. Yes. And all sorts can go on. I mean, we always say the person most at risk is the person in the chair immediately after you receive bad news. Yeah, that's, I, I don't doubt that's true. And we've all been examples in life where, you know, you've had phone calls in the middle of work, um, which do interrupt. And to that end, one of the protocols of management protocols I introduced when I had a practice of any consequence was to not have any telephones in the room. This is pre-iPhone mm -hmm. or not actually para-iPhone times. Um, and that you do not want calls coming through from reception about anything when you're treating a patient. Absolutely. I used to say, unless it's the prime minister or someone in my family's died, I don't want to be told because it's just inappropriate and unprofessional. It's not fair on the patient in the chair. No. You know, it really isn't and it distracts. So I think that's good advice because, you know, talking about that panic mechanism, if you do pause, you're less likely to do something or say that's something right. that you're going to regret. 
So what's the next thing you think would be good for practitioners to do? Um, I think that they need to understand that um, it is in some ways a no-fault jurisdiction. I mean, the entirety of regulation is really no one's trying to have a zero-sum game out of it. In other words, people are entitled to complain because that's the nature of the Mm -hmm. business. And a finding that someone is negligent or a finding that someone um, has acted unprofessionally is not the end of the world. That's what people look down the track and see what's going to happen, the world's going to end. It's not going to end um, in 90% of cases. Sure, there are some cases where it is going to end, but we're not going to talk about those today. I think it's really important that people put it in perspective and not immediately respond. So we've, we've kind of dealt with that. The second thing, and maybe not in the right order, is don't take it personally, which mm-hmm. is what I'm trying to get to, and that is that there should be um, no personal affront taken that a patient makes a complaint. And following on from that, and maybe I'm going too far ahead down your list of things to talk about, Annalene, but it's really important to put yourself in the patient's perspective. Oh, absolutely. And if people did that more often, both certainly in professional practice, it would make a massive difference. And so many times people will whinge and moan on the ADA peer, for example, um, interface about how unfair something is. But, you know, if you flip the table around and it was you getting advice from someone from another health practitioner in those circumstances that occurred, well, you would want to have recourse. You would want to be able to complain. You would want to have things rectified. I think that's just really how people need to look at it. It doesn't feel unreasonable when you put it in those terms. And I think it's interesting when people originally ring us or initially make that call to us, sometimes people are very much affronted and hurt. But it's always interesting when you speak to a practitioner who's moved through the process in their head or emotionally really quickly, and they come to you and say, I completely understand why that patient would feel that way. And I'm really sorry that they did feel that way. And if I was them, I would probably feel the same. You know then that no matter what happens next, it's going to be quick, it's going to be easy, and it's going to be smooth because the practitioner is already there. They they know what needs to be done. So it's just a case of verbalizing that to the regulator or to the patient. And then the patient comes on board because they're actually getting what they want, which is an apology and an explanation. Those cases are when they happen, it's magic. <laughs> well, I guess that's we're talking about insight and um, insight is better late than never but there's nothing like insight early on for resolving these issues. And you talk about an apology, and as you know, the law was changed many years ago, 20-odd years ago, that you could apologise that something happened rather than for something happening. So I think an apology is something that people should be ready to make and accept the fact that that will reduce the stress in a lot of circumstances. Now, the world's a very um, big place with lots of expectations, but... It's my experience, and I believe it would be yours, Annalene, and all of your teams as well, that the sooner someone acknowledges um, a, a, a complaint and a reason for a complaint and an acceptance and some insight into the circumstances leading to that and offers a heartfelt, genuine apology and maybe further says they understand how it happened and will undertake that it cannot happen again, then most issues are going to just fall away. Yeah, it's so much quicker and easier, isn't it, for everyone? So, of course, the next thing we would say is to seek advice, and that can take many forms. Mm. And I would always encourage people to speak to their peers. You mentioned 
peer review. There are, of course, a lot of forums. And I'm talking about speaking to your colleague next door as well. Like many of us work in multi-chair surgeries. And it's important that we do speak to people because you don't want to feel isolated. It's not good for your mental and emotional well-being to isolate yourself and keep this as some sort of terrible secret because it isn't personal and it isn't a terrible secret. It's just something that happened to you on that day. But I also think that we need to seek the right types of advice as well. So speaking to our peers is one thing, but we often see situations where something will come to us quite far down the piece because so-and-so's friend or a group of people on a forum said to deal with a matter this way, but actually it, the, the path's then set, but it's probably not how we would have recommended it be dealt with. Does that make sense, Brad? Or? It does. I understand how it's difficult for practitioners to decide where to get advice from. Um, so dentists, like some practitioners, uh, like to get multiple sources until they hear what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, and they will ask um, patients what they think about ridiculous things. Um, and look, that's completely fine and you will probably ultimately come to some sort of outcome. But it's very emotionally involved, this process, and I think it is incorrect to think that whoever you speak to about it as a peer will have some experience in it. Mm -hmm. And secondly, whether their response is appropriate or not. Um, And I think that it's better to, first thing is speak to your indemnifier, Um, mainly because they will cover you and assist you. And some indemnifiers are better than others, of course. So I happen to think DPL, with whom I'm insured, is probably the best or better ones in the country. (laughs) Um, There are others that are good and I'm not going to go through them, but I'm here. I don't feel that I've got a conflict by declaring, saying that I think DPL do a good job. And principally because I guess, and this is completely unsolicited, most of their advisors are are dentists. So you tend to have some organisations where the advisors are not dentists Mm -hmm. and then you have some where they're lawyers and both of those are fraught with problems. But let's go back from that. I think people need to get advice from an indemnifier. Now, I often get calls from people who are not satisfied with the advice from the indemnifier. Um, And that's okay, but you need to listen to your indemnifier first because they probably have most likely, in fact, with very few exceptions, have the experience to deal with it. They may not want to deal with it as quickly as you want or in the way that you want, but that's the first step. Um, Absolutely. And um, that's what you have them for, that's what you pay the fees for. And some in, or they all do different jobs, but that's the first step. Yeah, no, I, I would absolutely agree because as I was saying, just sometimes it can be quite difficult to unpick. So I would say for a don't, you've mentioned don't take it personally. I absolutely agree with that. Don't isolate yourself and, and put yourself in a position where you've got no support because some complaints will go on for a really long time. Sometimes they'll go on for years and that's a lonely few years. And look. On the subject of speaking to others about it, it doesn't culturally sit well with some people to do that. Um, And I feel very sorry for people that I've dealt with, and I'm sure you've dealt with as well, Annalene, that feel they're so ashamed about some allegation made against them that they can't talk to anyone about it. And the problem with that is twofold. Um, The stress and depression and isolation that will result from that um, which is very sad, um, but but secondly, there's an opportunity to talk to people with similar experiences 
um, whether it be through indemnifiers who can get them to speak to people or even me or someone else who can say you should speak to someone else about it. Because once you know you're not alone, um, things will get better very quickly. Most people don't talk about their um, complaints. I mean, my complaints I've had too. I didn't enjoy them. No. But my personality is such that I would talk to people about it. Um, one as a lawyer, which I didn't enjoy, and one as a dentist that I similarly didn't enjoy. Both were dismissed. But I understand the process. It's not fun. But if you can speak to people about it, you'll probably find um, that you'll feel better about it. And once you accept the process and understand the process, then it's part of the, well, I, don't, I won't, don't want to say healing. That sounds a bit new age for me, but it's going to be getting better very quickly. But it's true though. And then it has the other thing by extension. If because you talk about what went wrong in your practice or how you've received a complaint, it becomes a near miss for others. So a really classic example would be if you're in a multi-practitioner surgery and somebody pulls out the wrong tooth and the other practitioners are aware of that that happened, I can guarantee you everyone else is going to be checking those extractions just that little bit more carefully. So what you do is you make the entire environment safer, not because you're being judged, but because you're saying this mishap happened to me. Don't let it happen to you. So it goes, it extends even further to being actually helping everyone be safer. So it's protective for the practitioner, but it's protective for the people around them because they truly can learn from the mistakes of others. One thing we see, which I would say is a don't, and I'm going to be reasonably confident you've seen this too, is of course, one of the first things that we're going to ask for is a copy of the patient records. And for reasons we spent some time discussing at the start, Sometimes the records that come aren't great. And it can be really tempting to write down things that you know happened after the event to make that record more robust. Mm. And I would suggest not to do that. This arises more frequently than you might think. Um, oh, I know, Brad. <laughs> well, than, than even you might think. Um, and I guess there's a couple of aspects to break it down. The first thing is if you are going to write something after the event, then do not manipulate the record on the day. Make a separate entry with a separate date and time saying, for example, on reflection and after discussing this with my dental assistant, Miriam, is that your dental assistant? Yeah, we'll it talk is. about poor Miriam. Um, I have decided, I record the following observations. Now, that is completely risk-free, entirely appropriate, and a reflective statement after the event. That is very different to going into the practice software, opening up the entry on the day, and manipulating it for two reasons. One is that um, it's misleading, and two, it's going to be captured by the audit logs. Mm -hmm. um, I do know of someone I remember recently who said they bought software and turned the audit logs off. It's foolish, isn't it? And that makes it even worse. And there is case law about this with which you'd be familiar, Annalene, and they will strike people off or at least suspend them or cancel them for a period of time where they don't have honesty and probity. So if you are the person who would vary records, so typically the timeline is this, treat patient this day, two days later they come back and whinge and moan, ask for their records, a month later they go to see another dentist, make a complaint, so on the later date, when the complaint's made, magically the records are opened up and some new 
amount of information goes in, that's not going to be very convincing to anyone. If you're going to make amendments on reflection, advert to it early and put it on quickly afterwards. Um, but if you are the sort of person who thinks it's okay to change records to suit the purposes, and particularly if they're not true and correct, and the next level I was going to talk about is where people will go and fabricate material, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then that gets to a much higher level of dishonesty. And that is the sort of thing where if it's detected and you've got a sufficiently um, interested investigator, they'll uncover that and that's going to be catastrophic. Absolutely. And it leads on to another thing I wanted to discuss today, which was we started to see a lot more in the correspondence or communication from the regulator, probably in the last six to 12 months, this concept of a fit and proper person. Now, that terminology has been used before, but I feel it's being used more frequently or it's more of a focus. Would you agree? It's oh, Very much that is the case. And I've been in a couple of uh, court, superior court matters in relation to this and probably the way they typically arise is in reinstatement or reapplication cases. Mm -hmm. So without getting all legal about it too much, um, when people have their registration cancelled as opposed to suspended, as mm -hmm. your listeners would know, they have to make application and then you have to go through the fitness and propriety test. And that's easy when you're a 22-year-old shiny new graduate because there's no presumption that you haven't. Um, but if you have been had your registration cancelled or you've had some disciplinary action, then the question is quite more regularly arising because APRA is seeing an opportunity that there might be people out there who don't declare their criminal records, don't inform them when they've been charged with a criminal offence, mm -hmm. have been charged with criminal offences which are not consistent with fitness and propriety, um, and then they will try and uh, prosecute them for that and take them off the register to encourage safety. That's going to happen more and more because it's a, it, it relies on, as you know, legal practitioner, typical fitness propriety is a big issue for legal practitioners mm -hmm. and there's a massive body of case law going back to Quinn and other matters for many, many years and that's what is relied upon because if you're a professional treating people and you're expected to be fitness fit and proper and it's beyond the scope of this discussion today, but that's right. So that means... If you've got a domestic violence temporary protection order against you and give your wife a bit of a slap or your husband a bit of a slap or you uh, stop them from uh, being able to access money or you abuse them physically, then you're probably going to be in breach of that DVO or TVO and that's a criminal offence. Mm -hmm. So, um, and that shouldn't be a surprise to anyone and I'm not saying, wow, that's unreasonable, but people need to be aware that's how people do get caught um, and there's a lot of case law about that as well. There is, but it also comes down to an even more simpler form. People who falsify records are also not considered to be fit and proper oh, people. Uh, yeah. So it doesn't have to be, while I agree with you with the extremes, and people think because it didn't happen in the surgery, it doesn't impact on how they're perceived or how the regulator would perceive them. And of course, if you do have, there are obligations, if you do have a I think it's even just being charged, not prosecuted, isn't it? Then they have to notify the dental board within a certain time frame. But even just more simply than that, people who falsify records, the dental board does not consider them to be fit and proper people. And if something goes wrong in your practice of dentistry, you are far more likely to fall foul of the regulator for falsifying your records than you are for what actually happened in the first instance. That That's true. And I think that if you think about a, a Venn diagram to a certain extent, the global conduct of a person is the outer Venn diagram 
and the inner Venn diagram, the circle is around within practice activities. So it was once the case that only practitioners' activity within their practice was deemed to be um, subject to review and concern by the regulators, but that's been not the case. I can't remember the case, but it goes back at least 15 or 20 years mm, does, in health yeah. practice, probably since the national law, which is now 12 years. Um, and um, whatever you do, and I don't mean to demean or, or, or talk about DV or drink driving or any other of those things, but as you know, if, you're, if you've been prosecuted or arrested or charged with those offences, then that probably means there's an issue that the regulator might be interested in. So, for example, if someone is pulled over for drink driving, there's probably a suggestion that they are probably got an alcohol abuse problem. And so if a dentist is pulled over for drink driving or a therapist or a hygienist or a prosthetist or anyone else, um, then it's quite open to the regulator to investigate and get them assessed because if you've got an alcohol abuse or drug abuse problem, then you probably have other issues. Um, and so those... Uh, contingent, those external aspects certainly have an impact on what happens in the chair. Absolutely. And even if it isn't a drug or alcohol issue, sometimes it's just simply poor choices or poor decision makers. So we see it quite commonly with some of our younger practitioners who perhaps don't leave the habits of dental school in dental school and they graduate and still party hard on the weekends and they get caught. And the regulator is very interested in why they think it's acceptable to take recreational drugs or whatever, and how this affects or could potentially impact on their practice of dentistry. So it comes down to not necessarily habits or addictions, but just some really poor decision making and needing to recognize that there are some things that once you qualify, you simply can't do anymore. That's right. Being under the influence at um, under the influence of any illicit drug or prescribed or otherwise is inappropriate. Um, there's an argument some people have tried to make, as I've seen, where they say, well, if I take um, ecstasy on a Friday night and don't work till Monday, is that okay? Uh, that's an interesting argument. Um, and it, I su suspect that as time passes, um, that's going to subject that person to random drug tests. And you and I both know how many practitioners across all the health practitioner divisions are subject to urine and hair analysis on a regular basis, simply because drug abuse within um, the community is so broad mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and people work through that program and ultimately are free to practice again. And they come out the other side and it's one of those things you were saying about it not being the end of the world. Absolutely it isn't. But I can tell you what, random drug testing is very, very difficult to actually practice dentistry because, as you would know, Brad, but some of the Not people... Not from personal experience. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, as you would know, but some of the listeners probably don't, is you have to ring a number in the morning and they tell you whether or not your group needs to go and get tested. And the test has to be done by a certain time. So if you've got patients booked in, you've either got to cancel those patients or breach the requirements of your registration. And I would strongly counsel you not to breach the requirements of your registration. So it's really disruptive to being out of practice, it, if nothing else. It is. And look, there's also plenty of people who are randomly uh, alcohol tested before work every mm -hmm. day by a breathalyzer. Mm -hmm. um, there's all sorts of things. So I guess what we're trying to say to your listeners is there's a whole lot of conduct, which isn't ideal, but it's not the end of the world. Just, no. you know, Preferably don't engage in it, but if you do and you have are detected, then seek some advice and you'll come out the other end most times. Absolutely, and we'll work with you on that and support you through it. The business with conduct, I suppose, it is a privilege to 
be a health provider. And I think when you're young and shiny, as you said, I think you do understand that it is a privilege. And I think perhaps as you move through the profession, perhaps you see it less that way. I don't know, or that's not your primary focus. But not only is it a privilege, but there are certain privileges that we have that other people don't have. And two privileges that come to mind for me immediately are the privilege of having a prescriber number and the privilege of having a provider number, which is, of course, a billing mechanism. Now, you and I both see issues with abuse, for want of a better word, of those privileges. So could you talk to us a little bit about that, please, Brad? About um, prescriber and um, provider, number provider numbers. Issues. Well, they're both issued contemporaneously in a single form these days. I don't think it was when I was a young person. It wasn't when I was either. It was two forms. Uh, but now they are issued by Medicare. And um, the problem, and I guess we'll talk about this to the extent that you wish, Annalene, I guess that let's talk about prescriber numbers first. Um, I'm constantly shocked of uh, the amount of self-prescription that goes on of narcotic, narcotics and drugs of addiction. And I'm also um, astonished at the level of prescription to family and relatives without proper examination and normal treatment relationships. And the case law is chock-a-block Absolutely. <laughs> with this. And um, look, it can happen that someone says, oh, you know, a family member's got a headache and you give them a drug. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that's a good idea. Um, certainly not panadine for it or certainly not prescribing it for them. Um, but the reality is that the regulator is trying to preserve the safety of patient relationships and albeit that you may be married to or a blood relative of someone does not give you permission to absolve yourself of all the requirements of safety that exist within the prescription relationship. And put another way, if someone needs medical attention then or health attention as a dentist particularly send them to a health a general health practitioner not a dentist you can't give people you can't prescribe medications for people that aren't related to dental issues um, and that's something people do as well which is a third category of misconduct with mm -hmm. prescription absolutely and i always think as well they if you're they your family and their friends one would hope that you have a relationship of care and trust. So putting you in a position where you're breaching the requirements of your registration and the requirements of your privilege isn't really demonstrating care and trust. And it should be a reasonably simple conversation just to say, that's not something I can do. Exactly. Um, I think that this relationship with family and friends is something we could probably briefly discuss. And, and Getting back to the radiographic radiology issue we discussed before, the same applies with seeing family and friends. If you see your children or your wife or spouse or partner, sorry, I'm so non-postmodern, aren't I? Then you are going to have a bias in your mind before you look at them. So you don't want to see the SCC on the floor of their mouth. No, you don't. You don't want to see... Um, the potential adenocystic carcinoma on their palate because you're probably not going to do a soft tissue examination anyway because you're fitting them in at the end of the day before you go home and have that well-deserved beer for those who are drinkers or wine. Uh, that issue I really think is important and the, the dental board has not come out with a statement to the extent that the medical board has. No, not yet. But it's going to happen. Um, and I think it's really critical that, you know, the best dentist in the world is not necessarily your spouse. Mm -hmm. And even if that were true, 
um, it's not appropriate to be treating family members. And and we're sort of a bit of ahead of the game here perhaps by saying this, but it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And it's only a matter of time before, and, and I think there is uh, cases about it, maybe not publicised or, or at least published in the sense of court decisions, but there are cases where people miss pathology in spouses. Certainly medically there is. Mm-hmm, for sure. Um, and I just think it's a really important thing to think about, you know. Um, Send your, you must have dentists that you work with that you trust or know of. Send your family there. And as I say, pay the bill. Don't get it done for nothing. Pay the bill like a normal patient because if you can't see the value in that, how do you expect your patients to? That's interesting. Definitely. But yeah, so that's touching across two different things. What about then provider numbers? What issues do you yes, see? Yes, I went off on a bit of a rant there. That's all I? good. Love um, the rant. The provider <laughs> number issue is particularly opposite at the moment because of this new um, arrangement that therapists, hygienists have their own provider number. You and I both know, Annalene, that there's some pathetically low number of therapists and hygienists that have actually taken up that. Perhaps they're well advised by their indemnifiers that don't go near it. But if I were work, I would absolutely not let anyone use my provider number um, simply because there are great responsibilities that come with that in the view of both legislation under Medicare, but in the soft law and broad contract law of um, health insurers. Mm -hmm. And you and I both see many awful cases where lack of supervision, lack of responsibility, lack of care in relation to what's billed under the provider number um, comes back home and causes great consternation. It does. And I think just to make that point, the owner of the provider number is 100% responsible for any repayment that needs to be made for what's called inappropriate billing. And inappropriate billing can be, as we've discussed before on this podcast series, not having adequate dental records to support that code. It doesn't mean that you didn't do it. It means that your dental records don't reflect or don't sufficiently reflect what you did. If you have several people working under your provider number and their records don't sufficiently reflect what they did, you are responsible for that repayment. So if that's the case and people are using your provider number, you kind of really need to have some idea of what they're doing, really, sensibly. Uh, of course. And this all arises because provider numbers weren't designed for delegated tasks. They were no. designed for medical practitioners. And of course, there's a little bit of delegation with nurse practitioners. But dentistry is, a out, is an outlier because so much, you know, when I was a dentist employing therapists and hygienists, they were all working under my provider number. Of um, uh, and I would like to say that they did perform good records because of what involvement I had with them. Mm-hmm. But where you have people in a practice that you don't own and control, so that's where I own the practice, I can sort mm-hmm. of do what I like to some degree. But if you're working in a practice and your provider numbers being used by others without your knowledge, then that's a problem. I think this can be reduced and you know, to writing in a contract as to who can use it and who can't. Mm-hmm. Today, in 2023, I would be, 20 of your dentist members listening, um, don't let anyone use your provider number. Mm-hmm. Or if they do, for some reason, for example, a health phone won't accept the therapist or hygienist provider number, then do it under strict uh, supervision and certainly even just a simple agreement. You have to go to a lawyer to do it, but just get a document written up that said this is what's going to happen mm-hmm. because you will be made to repay it. And that's across both Medicare and also across all of the health funds that I've dealt with in the last 10 years. Absolutely. And 
ultimately we are teams, so we should be able to work together. Yeah. I think mm. as well, the other issue that we see with provider numbers, you mentioned things being used without your knowledge, is provider number codes or codes, item codes being changed behind the provider's mm. back. And I would strongly recommend that people do have a look at what's going under their provider number. I mean, how I manage this is every couple of weeks, because I'm only in the practice every couple of weeks, uh, I stroll out to reception and I ask to have a look at the high cap receipts because I, I want, you know, want to see if that marries up with what I put through. That, I don't do that because I'm horrible, mistrustful and mean. I do that because it's my obligation. Well, and partly my, because of that. Well, totally, mm. obviously. Same when I go and have a look in Steri to see what's happening with the infection control. You know, it's just because I'm mean, not because I'm interested. But in all seriousness, I think it's my responsibility. It's my obligation. So if an error has been made, we can identify it. We can rectify it early because people make mistakes and that's okay. But sometimes it's a pattern because people have been directed. This wouldn't happen at my practice, but there are practices we help where people have been directed to change the codes. And the poor old dentist has got no idea what's going on to their provider number. And it doesn't marry with their clinical records. And of course, people who change codes aren't terribly clever at doing it. They tend to do it as a pattern and their health fund software and Medicare software is designed to pick those patterns up. And so the dentist will get pinged. And back to point A, they are 100% responsible for that repayment. So it's always smart to have some systems in place to have a look and see what's going under your provider number, I think. So you mentioned, we just mentioned infection control and me going into the steri room then. Do you have any opinions or advice about that, Brad? Um, I think that since 2011-12, the first dental council and health department cases in New South Wales were suggestive that even if you don't control the practice, you have a responsibility to meet the criteria of infection control as the current standards are. And there's some awful stories, which you'd be aware of as well, Annalene, in relation to the impact on practitioners as a result of that, because they've gone into a practice assuming that the infection control protocols processes, reprocessing is in place, and it's not. It's particularly an issue where you are an employee, you're an independent contractor, uh, or a service and facility user. And you, as the dentist, don't have control or therapist or hygienist don't have control over that. Um, I, the way I would suggest that younger practitioners, particularly or employed mm -hmm. practitioners, deal mm -hmm. with it is you need to satisfy yourself, maybe not in as such an officious way as Annalene does, but go and have a look <laughs> at the sterilization, sterilization protocols and processes and satisfy yourself. You're happy with them. On top of that, I advise people to put clauses into their contracts that say that any breach of infection control protocol that is noticed and not rectified is the basis of termination of the contract or suspension of services because you don't want to be the person that's in a practice where you knowingly uh, are working where someone's not infection control compliant and a complaint's made by a patient and investigation's done and you as the employed or engaged dentist are responsible to a degree that you'll be um, disciplined in relation to that. So infection control is a hot topic up and down. It goes up and down in terms of, you know, importance at various times, in, at least in the view of the regulator. But it's just a critical underlying expectation that it will be correct. And I, don't, I do think that it's really critical practitioners getting agreements make sure that the services include proper provision of infection control and to monitor it. Uh, as you say, have a look every now and then, make sure that you're satisfied. And if you 
can evidence that by way of an email to a practice manager or some notes that you took, then it can say that you did all you could within your powers and responsibilities to make sure it was correct. Because you're not going to go out there and do all the processing yourself. You haven't got time. No, you, but you do need to do exactly what you're suggesting, I think. And I think that's a really um, important point. So the, the, the records, we could talk about records for longer, but records are all that an investigator or anyone else has got to go on. Absolutely. And if they're poor, then you've got a problem. No, absolutely. I think with the infection control as well, one thing that's quite interesting is, of course, because it's a team, so you've got several people who are involved. It can be really interesting when you speak to the newest member of the team to see what their understanding of what they ought to be doing is, because they are, with no offence intended, the weakest link, aren't they? Because they're new yeah. and it's not familiar with them yet. And you can actually identify that for the purposes of training and get that some more support for that person, because ultimately it's about keeping the patient safe. And that's what we're all really trying to work towards. And if people actually read the infection control manual and the infection control management plan and do all these things, then it's fine. But, of course, no one does. Um, and when there's an investigation, particularly in New South Wales, in my experience, they will come and they will speak to the staff and ask Absolutely. them what they do. They're not going to take your word for it. They're going to go and interview people and so, you know, for goodness sake, have dental assistants who are trained, who've got done the courses, who regularly update the courses and understand it. And if they don't understand it, getting onto workplace law, then don't have them working there. I always find it funny. Um, obviously, I go to regular infection control courses, as we would recommend any practitioner does to keep updated. And we're very lucky to have access to some incredibly good infection control courses up in Queensland, as I'm sure other states are too. What I find funny is my staff think it's a real treat if they get to come. And I see that as a really positive thing because they're learning and we're all learning. But I would consider I would have thought that they wouldn't necessarily enjoy it. But it's literally like the best day of their life if they get to come to an infection control course with me. I think that's lovely. I think that's great. I think it's good that something which is so important as compliance, they view so positively. Yeah, well, let they tell you that anyway, Annalene. I'm sure that it is probably good to get out of the surgery for a day. And I think that it's good for team building and a whole range of things. And it's just so critical. It's, you know, I practiced in the days early on, and I'm not that old, but uh, gloves weren't a thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, when they were a thing, then a practice I was in, I won't name it, uh, would wash the gloves yeah. at the end of the day. And uh, wedges would be sterilized. Yeah. Um, Wooden wedges? Wooden wedges. Fantastic. And also, um, I remember starting in 1990, sterilizing handpieces, yeah. you know, which was just unheard of. There's Absolutely. some studies that said it was a thing, wasn't compulsory. So it's really clear what the standards are now. In, in 1982, 83, it wasn't, but it is now. So just get with the program. As I like to say to people who and none of your members or listeners would be whingers and moaners about how difficult it is being a dentist. Well, no one put a gun to your head. Go and do something else. Plenty of jobs in real estate, <laughs> car sales, IT. I'm pretty confident they have compliance as well, though. It's interesting, though, what you're saying about how infection control has changed. And I really thought after COVID, we'd see some really, really big changes coming through. And it was quite pleasing as someone who works in practice still, albeit infrequently relatively compared to what it used to be before I worked for dental protection, um, how few changes have actually had to be made in order for us to be safe. I, that, I found that really pleasing because I thought right. it was going to be like, the, you know, the 80s, which is before my time. But of course, a lot of changes were made in the 80s in response. And, and, you know, 
that's due to people like Laurie Walsh, Neil Savage, other people that used to run these sort of nationally approved courses and that work that was done um, and hats off to both of them and to others who I haven't mentioned, but I just know how critical those courses were and ahead of their time and that's why, you know, there hasn't been the changes necessary as you've adverted to. Yeah, we've been lucky. So just to finish off then, Brad, if you could give some advice. Now, I guess it's to any practitioner, but often we do tend to target our advice to recent graduates who don't have that same um, empowerment in practice. So for an old girl like me, if I see something I don't like in practice, I'll be sure I sing out. It's a bit harder when you're a recent graduate. But of course, the advice is for everyone. Another time, of course, is when you're changing practices. That's when it, you can be left a little bit vulnerable. What sort of sage pieces of advice would you give to practitioners? I don't know about sage, and the trouble with advice is it's often not taken. But if, That's Alice in Wonderland. I give myself very good advice, but I very seldom follow it. I think that um, uh, practically just reflecting on it now, I would find someone five years older than me, go to a study club, that someone is in and make face-to-face contact Um, because you may not like what a person five years older or 10 years older tells you, but they've got the experience that you might disregard or you might learn from, but you are not going to get the experience talking to people in your cohort because Mm -hmm. they don't have it. Simple as that. Um, So that's something I, you know, I I don't know about you, Annalene, you're, we've already established many years younger. I'm not going to name the number today. Um, but the thing is that face-to-face communication in study clubs is a very rich way of engaging and understanding what happens. If you, the reason people don't like publicising what happens on Facebook is if you put it on Facebook or whatever the modern TikTok or um, Instagram or Twitter or whatever or any other program, Telegram, whatever you're using, um, then it's there forever. It might be encrypted, but it's there. Whereas if you go and have a conversation face-to-face at a study club, it's only there in the ephemera for while you talk about it. Mm-hmm. So people might know about it, but it's not evidence. So, and people will generally respect to a greater extent what's said verbally. And mm-hmm. I just think that is missing, is, is missing for younger people in mm-hmm. terms of practice. So my view would be join a study club, create a study club. Mm. Most people um, who know something about dentistry will be happy to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And, and get and meet people face to face, go to dinner, don't have dinner, play lawn bowls, go sailing, play cricket, who cares, but meet people face to face and talk about it. That's my best advice I would give to well, someone. That's great advice. As an older practitioner as well, I found it's gone the other way too. So the young ones coming out, they do things differently to the way I was trained and I'm learning from them as well. And that's great because we learn from each other. And wouldn't that be lovely to think that in an ideal world we'd all be happier and safer? Well, that's right, and that's the only way it's going to happen, not through posting angry um, messages on boards, not that I would ever have done that <laughs> or been thrown <laughs> off them for that. Um, but I think the, the Ricks, you know, humans speak, no one else can do it, and I think that richness of communication should be valued and used wherever possible, particularly when it's basically patient safety that's at stake. And of course, as we said, our reputation and our registration too. Yep. Patient safety at the front, but there's a, we really are in a high stakes game. Yes. Well, Brad, thank you so much for your time today and thank you all for listening. Thanks, Annalene. Thank you again, Brad, for that relevant and helpful content. And thank you all for listening. 
We hope this podcast was helpful to you and we look forward to sharing more guidance with you in the future. If you like Dental Protection Podcasts and you'd like to hear more, please subscribe and leave a review.